Hello and welcome to the Securities Compliance Podcast presented by the National Society of Compliance Professionals, where it is our mission to help you put compliance in context. I'm your host, Patrick Hayes, Senior Counsel at the Calfee Law Firm. And on today's show, we do a deep dive on the 2021 Investment Advisor Section Report from the North American Securities Administrators Association, highlighting some of the 2020 activities for NASA and its broader application to the compliance profession. For our interview segment, we welcome in Lillian Morvay to provide our listeners with valuable insights on the impact of insurance on compliance and how varying types of insurance, DNO, ENO, cyber, can affect how broker dealers and RIAs are doing business today. Finally, we'll wrap up today's show with another edition of the History Has Your Back segment, where we look back at the life of fireman hero Ed Pulaski and the importance of finding the right tool. Diving into the headlines portion of the show, in its April 2021 Investment Advisor Section report, NASA discussed the adoption of two model rules that it passed in the fourth quarter of 2020. Noting the specific operational challenges posed by the pandemic, NASA adopted a comprehensive rule on compliance to ensure that advisors cover the full range of investor concerns in their written policies and procedures. In addition, NASA also came to an agreement on the long-debated proposed rules on continuing education to ensure that advisors are knowledgeable of current regulatory requirements and best practices. And finally, they also provided some excellent feedback and best practices to address the challenges facing advisors regarding cyber and technology issues. But let's dig into the report by starting with some more of the fun stuff and talk about some numbers. Specifically, what states had the most number of state-registered investment advisors? Uh, That belonged to California with nearly 3,000, followed in order by Texas, Florida, New York, and Illinois. Where are new RIAs being formed at the state level? That Distinction in the number one spot went to Florida, followed by Ohio, Texas, Arizona, and Nevada. 27,412. That represents the total number of state registered investment advisors. In addition, some of the quick profile stats for those uh, those state registrants, 81% of them were one to two person shops. 48% of them included insurance agents, and 36%, so just over a third, also included broker-dealer registered representatives. 81% of them had retail investors as clients. Just 16% had high net worth investors as clients. And with regard to fees, um, assets under management still took the number one spot here. 84% of them charged using AUM. But you also had 52% charging hourly, 51% also charging fixed fees, and only 9% charging performance-related fees. As we get into the model rule discussion that we mentioned earlier, I think it's important to note that this rule really was prepared to help investment advisors foster cultures of compliance with their legal and regulatory obligations. But in addition to the specific rule, NASA also developed a compliance grid that was designed to really help identify many of the most common compliance and supervision issues that occur and to help provide firms with an outline of the types of things that they need to make sure they address in their own required policies and procedures. The model rule establishes that written policies and procedures must include the following. 
compliance procedures, supervisory procedures, proxy voting, physical security and cybersecurity procedures, uh, a code of ethics containing standards of business conduct that reflect the investment advisor's fiduciary obligations, as well as the advisor's reporting obligations, material non-public information policies, a detailed business continuity plan. And as you can see, this covers a wide breadth of different compliance concerns, but it wasn't the, the rule, the model rule from NASA wasn't intended to supplement carefully tailored policies and procedures. Um, and it's certainly not supposed to be a one size fits all. Rather, firms should still take it upon themselves to tailor these policies and procedures to the specific products and services that are being provided by that investment advisor firm. This is in the same way that the SEC rule 20647 does not identify specific topics that advisors must include in their compliance and supervision policies and procedures. Rather, again, the rule requires advisors to identify their own unique conflicts and risk exposures and then develop certain protocols to help address those conflicts and risks. So how did NASA help? You know, again, we just mentioned most of these firms are one and two person shops. So what did they do to help with this? Well, the model rule came up with a very important 10 page sample compliance grid which offers a checklist of policies and procedures consistent with the above categories. The, the compliance grid, in fact, color codes and summarizes the policies and procedures required by the model rule, assisting advisors to identify possible omissions or weaknesses in their existing policies and procedures, helps identify subtopics, common deficiencies, specific uh, courses of action, and it, it really was there to help advisors in, in the uh, report. It, the report itself encourages advisors to, quote, actually remove the off-the-shelf policies and procedures from the plastic wrap and not to blindly check the boxes, which could lead to inadvertently adopting policies and procedures that are irrelevant to their business models. And in some cases, impossible for a smaller state registered advisor to comply with. Obviously, this is going to entail appropriate review and modification using the template. But nonetheless, I think it's pretty clear that NASA went out of its way to really help firms here. And the reason that they did that is uh, uh, you don't have to look any further than at the very end of that section of the report where it provides a, a pretty specific warning <laughs> that this model rule and the, and the associated compliance grid will be used by state securities regulators as a blueprint for examiners allowing them to compare what policies and procedures have been established, how they have been maintained, and to what extent they are being enforced. In addition to the model on continuing education, which we already discussed, the NASA report also summarized the development of a cybersecurity checklist and additional guidance for investment advisors. This cybersecurity, the Cybersecurity and Technology Project Group assisted NASA and the Investment Advisor Committee in developing the cybersecurity checklist for investment advisors as a resource that was designed to help IAs better understand the meaning, intention, and connectivity of a balanced approach to cybersecurity, and to help them develop best practices for addressing a cybersecurity compliance program. This then included the cybersecurity checklist that was divided into five very important sections. Identify, protect, detect, respond, and recover. For any compliance professional, looking to brush up on some important topics or identify some new tools to add to their arsenal of good compliance documentation, look no further than the resources provided by NASA.
As we move into today's interview portion, I am incredibly excited to welcome to the show Lillian Morvet. Lillian is the founder of the Independent Broker Dealer Consortium. Uh, she's an attorney with over 17 years of expertise in the RIA and BD field. And in the course of her professional experience, she saw the need for people in this business to meet and share experiences, contacts, resources, really a, a best practice approach to the entire, uh, to our ability to, to function at our highest level within this incredibly fast moving environment. And so she began by founding the Independent Broker Dealer Consortium Risk Management Conference that then morphed into a multifaceted resource platform for talented industry professionals that help support broker dealers and, and registered investment advisors. And, and it really is this collaborative network of legal compliance, cybersecurity, uh, and insurance, which we'll talk quite a bit about today, uh, who partner with broker dealers and, and RIAs and, and again, help them get the resources and the expertise that they need to be able to effectively run their businesses. Lillian is a, a very active NSCP member, and we're really, really excited to have her with us today. Lillian, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Patrick. Happy to be here. So to kind of set up the, the crux of our conversation today, I think it'd be really good for us to kind of set the table a little bit. And I know we're going to focus on lots of different uh, uh, you know, facets of insurance, but I think it'd be good uh, to take a step back and I would love to hear your thoughts on, you know, what what is the the purpose of insurance for broker dealers, for RIAs, for for anyone really, and then maybe talk to a little bit about uh, the the concept of of risk transfer and and exactly how that concept ultimately um, can uh, it, how ultimately it impacts how firms are going to be able to run their businesses and, and, and hopefully provide some, some benefit to them. So Patrick, if you think about how professional companies protect themselves, think about your dentist, think about your doctor, think about your attorney, think about your accountant. These individuals are providing a professional service and there are times when they will commit a negligent act, they will inadvertently cause injury to their client. And the clients have the opportunity to recover any damages or any losses related to that injury. Those services are insured by professional liability policy. Professional liability insurance policies are also available to companies that are in the financial sector broker-dealers, registered investment advisors. It's not mandatory that broker-dealers, registered reps, RIAs, advisors purchase professional liability insurance. And we have found that the majority of those businesses don't. And, you know, it's, it's really quite surprising because, you know, if you're dealing with a professional, one of the things you want to know is that they have purchased this insurance so that in the event that you do sustain a loss, do sustain damages as a result of a professional service that was rendered or not rendered, you will have an opportunity to sue them. You can sue them anyway, but there's going to be an insurance policy that stands behind them. So one thing to consider from a client perspective, do you want to do business with a company 
that has not protected itself with a policy. Sure. But number two, and what we're going to be focusing on today, is why won't most broker-dealers and registered investment advisors purchase professional liability insurance? You know, we hear that, oh, I have a good relationship with all my clients. You're not going to sue me. I can't tell you the number of statement of claims that I've read, and it always starts out with, Joe and I were friends. We met at church. We had a great relationship. I trusted him or I trusted her. I gave him or her my funds to invest for me, and lo and behold, something happened, and I lost the majority of my savings. I'm suing them. Mm. I can't tell you. It's like a storybook that is a story that's told over and over and over again. So that argument goes out the window. And the other one is it's just too expensive. But if you consider the risk involved, and we're going to talk about risk transfer, thank you for bringing that up, the risk involved, there is um, a site on FINRA, and it documents the number of arbitration awards that go unpaid. And, of course, when an arbitration award goes unpaid, FINRA will then revoke your license, your registration. You will no longer be able to operate as a broker-dealer. But think about the ramifications of closing down your business. The clients are now without a broker-dealer and registered reps that are going to be managing their accounts. The broker-dealer is now going to be setting those registered reps and advisors who have been licensed and registered with them out on their own, unfettered. And they're going to be closing down. They're going to be filing for bankruptcy in most cases. So when a claim is made against a broker-dealer and there is no insurance to assist in responding to that claim, defense expenses are incredibly high to take a matter through arbitration. Minimum, I would say, is about $150,000. And then, of course, you've got the compensatory damages in the event that the arbitrators find against the respondents, the broker-dealers, the registered reps. Mm -hmm. So the risk is great. So what do you want to do as part of your compliance protocol? Part of your compliance assessment is risk. So why don't you want to transfer that risk? to a carrier. And, you know, the other thing that I think a lot of broker-dealers and RIAs are unaware of is that you're able to negotiate. So there isn't a one-size-fits-all policy. Not every policy is going to be subject to the same limit of liability or the same deductible or retention or the same terms. So if a policy is offered to you with a million-dollar limit and it's a little bit too expensive, well, what about a $500,000 limit? It's better than nothing. Some carriers may even come down to $250,000 limit per claim, depending, of course, upon the size of the organization. Or they can increase the deductible depending upon the firm's ability to pay a higher deductible in the event there is a claim. So I think something that's you know really important to consider are what is your pain point? In other words, at what point will you be unable to respond financially to a claim and that will cause you to consider closing down your doors? And that's a good place to start when shopping for a policy. That's really a matter of risk transfer. You know, there's heightened litigation 
regulatory scrutiny continues to escalate year after year after year. Risk is real, but the exposure can be contained. And that's the, the purpose of an insurance policy. Yeah, I really like how how you framed that and, and how you kind of brought us back in, in thinking about, you know, an entity is in, in, in how it's trying to be successful, all the different types of steps and how thoughtful it is to create, you know, business plans and hiring new people and networking and building and fostering relationships with investors and clients and service providers. How much are they willing to put all of that time, energy and effort at risk when uh, of shutting their doors because of potentially a claim that, you know, if it was an inadvertent, you know, negligent thing that happened, whether there was no intent behind it, or even if they were doing all the things they should have, sometimes you may still have to deal with certain issues, even if it's outside of your control, right? And so this is a way for a firm to really help provide it uh, an ability, uh, a viability in the long term by transferring some of that risk moving forward. Absolutely. And, you know, it's a really good recruiting tool as well. A registered rep or an advisor who has had coverage in the past with other firms. If you are trying to recruit some talent to your firm, one of the questions that every registered rep and advisor should be asking that new firm is, am I going to be insured? So here's another piece of information that perhaps some uninsured broker dealers, and they typically are the smaller ones, the mid-sized to the large firms, they are predominantly fully, fully insured. But for the smaller firms, you know, you can share the cost of the insurance with those registered reps and with those advisors as well. And that's typically how the policies are modeled. So you have a master policy, the broker dealer is the named insured, then the individual reps and the advisors that are registered or employed by that entity are all insured under that policy. And typically, broker-dealers would then charge back a portion of that premium to each individual. You know, typically, it's $1,500, $2,000, $2,500 a year. Think about how much you pay for car insurance. Now, we are mandated. We're required by law. Right. To insure our cars, and it's $1,500, $2,000, depending upon where you live. The cost to provide professional liability insurance for your professionals is roughly about the same per person. Yeah. No, that's a great, <laughs> that's a great point. And um, I'm thinking to myself, I want to put a pin in the cost part of that because I love what you said there. And I want to come back. I've got a question later on that, that I was thinking about in advance of our of our discussion today that talks about cost because I do think there are some unknowns there for a lot of registrants both on the on the RIA and on the broker dealer side but but for now with, with that thank you for providing that really nice uh, uh, kind of foundation for us as we look to to dig in a little bit on on some of these uh, concepts that that you discussed and I guess at the outset, I think it would also be really good for this audience, right? And, and again, these are all, you know, chief compliance officers, compliance professionals, legal practitioners that are working hand in hand with the leadership 
at these respective broker dealer and you know registered investment advisor firms. And so I, I think probably some of these conversations that we're having today could very easily be occurring with the individuals listening now when they're in those you know strategic leadership type type meetings. So what what are some of the different types of insurance? You, you've talked about professional liability. Um, would love to hear maybe even some additional you know uh, a context around that. But what are the different types of insurance? that you would say are specifically important for advisors, broker dealers, and, and other folks that are that are active in this space? Well, of course, we'll start with professional liability. And that provides coverage for claims that arise out of the rendering or failure to render professional services. And with respect to the entity, it will also provide protection for due diligence related matters. Um, negligent hiring. Let's say that the broker-dealer brings on a registered rep that has a very spotted background. And we all know that FINRA is looking at rogue reps very carefully these days. And in the event that they determine or come to determination that a broker-dealer has hired a rogue rep, well, they're going to be implicated in any kind of investigation, in addition to any kind of customer complaints. So it's very important for broker-dealers when they are considering purchasing professional liability insurance, number one, to make sure that they have an insurance broker who is very familiar with that type of policy. You know, you can't purchase this type of insurance from the same person who sells you your business insurance, for example, or your car insurance. It's a very specialized field. And I would say there are probably... 10, you know, two handfuls of people in the country that I would trust to purchase professional liability insurance from. The nuances in every policy are, are so slight in some circumstances, but it can make the difference between a covered claim and an uncovered claim. Sure. So you have to be very, very careful in terms of matching up the professional services that you want insured under the policy with what is being covered under the policy that you're considering, or just as important, what exclusions are contained in that policy that may trigger the insurance company to deny coverage for a claim that you thought was covered? You know, there are a lot of broker dealers that engage in some investment banking on the side, or mergers and acquisitions work on the side, or some of the larger firms may even custody client funds. Those are typically excluded under policies, but that doesn't mean that you can't negotiate to have some of that coverage brought back into the policy. You know, without the experience, you're not going to know that. And it's also nice to know the different underwriters out there. Again, this is a field that does not have a large number of carriers or underwriters that write it. So a broker who only focuses on this type of insurance is going to have a relationship with those underwriters, which inures to the benefit, certainly, of your client that you're negotiating for. Um, so professional liability, clearly, you know, we'll talk a little bit about directors and officers liability insurance for the private broker dealers. We're seeing more and more sales of DNO insurance to the private sector, which in the past, an argument was made that it really wasn't necessary and not publicly traded. 
But with the increase in regulatory actions and investigations against broker dealers and advisors, DNO policies are now expanding to provide coverage for those types of inquiries or claims. So it's something that we encourage our broker dealers to consider. And there are some carriers that may even add on management liability or directors and officers liability to fill in some of those gaps. The other thing that we're finding under professional liability policies these days is very small limits of liability that are extended to respond to a subpoena request or a regulatory investigation. You know, we find that a lot of these larger claims against broker-dealers and RIAs start with a statement on the record, or they start with a request for subpoena, subpoena for documents. They start with kind of fishing around for information. And if broker-dealers are uninsured, or if they are just unaware that they can escalate into a larger situation, they might respond without the benefit of an attorney. To have a DNO policy in place that would provide that coverage will ensure that you will have an attorney that is going to work with you to make sure that you're not providing privileged documents or that you are not in any way implicating yourself unnecessarily. So, those, I think, are significant benefits to consider in purchasing DNO insurance. And of course, the top of everybody's list these days is cybersecurity. You know, mm-hmm. I just read the other day that the CNA cyber breach resulted in over a $40 million ransom paid oh, by CNA. Holy cow. $40 million. I mean, that is just beyond comprehension. Sure, sure. And that's the kind of thing that would, again, your point at the very top of the show about transferring risk is that a risk that you're willing to eat entirely on your own versus say share that by by you know purchasing some insurance that that again is going to be able to help you navigate that that type of situation but let's dig into that cybersecurity point a little bit because i'm interested in I know that that you know cybersecurity, man. I it's been you know ten plus years, and it feels like every single year it is at the top of the you know priority list when it comes from the SEC and Finra. And I think a lot of people understand now how important having the right policies and procedures in place to help protect the firm and it, the information that it has. But I still don't think there's a lot known about how like the actual process to to secure cybersecurity insurance and what people what firms i should say have to go through in order to to do that so maybe um how how does one secure cybersecurity insurance and and maybe talk a little bit about the process of course so again you would have to work with a broker that is aware of the various markets that provide cybersecurity insurance specifically to broker dealers and RIAs. And you know, fortunately, there are a number of carriers that are extending coverage for broker dealers and RIAs for cyber. Unfortunately, over the years, 
that price keeps going up because we're seeing breaches. We're seeing breaches on a regular basis. What I am so fascinated about with the cybersecurity insurance and that whole process is that it is so different from other policies that are issued to broker-dealers and RIAs. So a couple of companies that I deal with on a regular basis, you would submit an application for your client. And before the underwriter even starts digging into that application, that application is sent off to a different division of that carrier, and they're going to do an independent evaluation. They're going to get into, they're going to check on the domains to see if there are any vulnerabilities with respect to the domains, emails. And this is even before they dig in and get into your own system. Um, so it's not like your traditional insurance policy. And there are ways that they can do a risk assessment beyond what is present on that piece of paper. I mean, they did one on me and it was surprising, you know, what they came up with. I've also partnered with a cybersecurity expert and we're creating a program for RIAs, quite frankly. And with my cyber expert and with the internal carriers expert, their assessments dovetail, they're not redundant. So in addition to getting a quote for cybersecurity insurance, the client is going to get two different assessments, and then they're going to know right off the bat, what do they need to do to start closing up these holes, these vulnerabilities? The other thing that's so fascinating about cyber is the various benefits under a policy. Ransomware. So let's talk about ransomware. I mean, what other policy other than, you know, ransom insurance, I guess, is going to step in and negotiate a ransom for someone who has taken control of your system? So that's really fascinating. Number two, they're going to hire forensic specialists to go in and determine how the breach happened, who, who perpetrated this breach. Number three, they're going to provide credit monitoring for the clients who've been impacted. And that could go on for six months or to a year. And if you think about the cost to communicate with your clients that may have been breached, astronomical, the continued credit monitoring for a period of time, that adds up. In addition to all of the forensics and then losses that are related to that cyber breach. Fund transfer is an area of claims that we have seen an increase in. And I raise that for a specific reason. Fund transfer is, I am pretending to be your client, Patrick, and I send you an email and that email says, hey, Patrick, I'm out of the country. I need you to wire $100,000 from the, this account that you're managing to this account. And you're like, oh yeah, Lillian, I knew that you were out of the country. No problem. You're a good client. Let me take care of that for you. Well, it turns out that it wasn't your client that asked you to transfer that money and it wasn't transferred to Lillian's account. It was transferred to someone else's account. And that happens with a lot, with quite a bit of frequency. So some professional liability carriers were putting in a sublimit. They would give you um, $100,000 within your policy to respond to that kind of a claim. Because there's been such an escalation of claims, Many of these carriers are pulling that little coverage grant out. And one thing I say when I speak to audiences is today's claim is tomorrow's exclusion. So mm -hmm. it's not a surprise. So where are we going to find coverage for that type of claim that tends to happen with some frequency? 
We did see some cyber policies picking it up, and now we're seeing them taking it out as well, again, wow. because it has become a frequent claim. And some of these transfers are seven figures. So it's not only frequent, but it's severe. It's and then we can also see it in a crime bond. So between the three policies, more times than not, a broker dealer and an RA will find coverage for it. It's typically going to be a sublimit, which means that if your policy was a million dollar limit, they might have a hundred or two hundred thousand dollar limit for these types of claims. But you have to be very careful when you go through your policy to see what is covered, what's not covered, and what are the sublimits. But here's something else that um, has thrown in another layer of complication with respect to cyber. People are working from home. Sure. So we're Zooming. And before March of 2020, how many brokers, registered reps, advisors Zoomed with their clients? How many more registered reps and advisors are communicating with WhatsApp, with texts, with emails, communication that are easy to breach? and difficult to keep track of unless you've got the appropriate software purchased by the broker-dealers. Now, we all know that unless the broker-dealer has allowed their registered reps and advisors to communicate in that way, they're they're in violation of policies, but we all know that that hasn't stopped people from doing (laughs) what they they tend to do and what makes it easier. But again, with more people working from home, everybody's got different laptops and before for for personal use, maybe they're just using one for personal use. The capability of someone coming in and breaching that system has mm-hmm. escalated now. Yeah. So one of the things that you, I mean, one, thank you for that additional, for all that additional detail, because I do think it is critically important for, as you laid out all of the different expenses that can add up all the different risks involved and then the associated expense with that, you know, but it was, it was funny as you were, as you were listing those off, one of the things that occurred to me was we are already talking about a significant uh, dollar amount and we haven't even really focused on the reputational risk that a firm could take. Or again, as, as someone finds out that a breach has occurred and you lost a bunch of client information or even just a couple clients information regardless that that news hits the public and now you've got lots of prospects that pick up on that what's the what's the opportunity lost that that you're going to have as as you then are unable to capitalize on potential prospect relationships because of that reputational risk absolutely how do you quantify that right by that. And another really important coverage grant under a cyber policy is what if one of your vendors were breached and that has impacted you? These cybersecurity policies also extend coverage in that situation. So that's really important. Now, broker dealers and RIAs are charged with the responsibility of vetting their vendors. And one of the very important considerations now when vetting a vendor is are they insured? Do they have cybersecurity? What are the protocols that they have in place? And if they're in certain states like New York, you know, are they in compliance 
with the state's rules and regulations with respect to cybersecurity. I mean, there are a few states that are, you know, have exceeded what other states. Have yeah. Done. New York is one of them. That's really good to know. I think another part that I think would be really helpful for our listeners, because now that we've started to identify all of the different types of insurance that, that folks should be on the lookout for, and you identified for them some best practices to help that you know, broker dealer and, and RIA determine kind of the types of insurance that could be a good fit for them. I would really like to get your thoughts on what happens if you get a claim <laughs> and, 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 you know, what, what additional context would be helpful for broker dealers and RIAs to know about that process when it starts? Really good question. I'm going to back up a little bit though. I'm going to back up and suggest, strongly suggest that before a policy is purchased, look at the definition of a claim. How is it defined in the policy? Does it require just a written demand for monetary damages? Does it also expand to a verbal demand for monetary damages? Well, how is that going to impact the insured broker dealer or RIA? So let me give you an example. So let's say that the policy requires that they be put on notice for verbal and written demands for monetary damages. You know, you've got Joe who's got a client that calls up and says, you know, because we stayed in this investment, I lost $10,000 and I want that made up. Is that a verbal demand? Joe doesn't do anything about it. He placates his client, client stays quiet. The policy expires. Perhaps a broker dealer or RIA changes carriers. Now that client, calls back and says, hey, you know what? I haven't recovered everything that I lost three months ago. I want you to pay it. That new carrier is going to exclude coverage for that matter because they knew or should have known that that was, well, knew that it was a claim, right? right? Because if if it required notice of a verbal matter. So that's number one. That's really, really important. Number two, Does that claim have to be made by a client? So let me give you another example. If a policy requires that a claim be made by a client and we have an outside RIA that is licensed and registered with a broker dealer and that outside RIA has clients that may not be clients of the broker dealer. We all know how FINRA feels about broker-dealers supervising these outside RIAs. They require them to. I mean, I know that that's a little bit of gray, but I'm just going to go out on a limb and say they're supposed to be supervising. So now a claim comes in against that outside RIA and the broker-dealer. The broker-dealer for failing to supervise that outside RIA, the client claims that that outside RIA put them in an investment that caused them to lose money. The policy says a claim is covered for the rendering professional services to a client. That individual was not a client of the broker-dealers. The carrier disclaims coverage. So I would say that 50% of the professional liability policies out there require that a claim be made by a client, and the other 50% of the policies do not have that requirement. 
So that's something very important to consider. So now let's talk about what happens when a claim is made. So the policy language in most of these policies is, is rather loose, that the broker-dealer, that the insured, needs to place the, car the carrier on notice within a reasonable period of time. Well, what does reasonable mean? You know, we can go into litigation in all 50 states that try to define reasonable. What do I recommend? Put them on notice immediately. Why waste time? Why jeopardize coverage? And don't you want to get on this as soon as possible? So clearly, if there's a statement of claim of FINRA arbitration has been filed, you've got a, a set period of time with it within which the respondent needs to respond. Let the insurance company assume that role. Policies are written on a duty to defend basis, and I would say the majority of cases. So what does that mean? It means that the carrier has taken on the responsibility to retain an attorney for you, and that attorney is your attorney. They are going to represent you in this claim. And your responsibility is to pay that deductible for the retention. Typically for a small firm, it's twenty-five dollars to $50,000. A larger firms, it can be up to a million dollars, depending upon what they are able to assume. And you work closely with that attorney. The attorney has reporting responsibilities to the insurance company. And now we've created a little team here. And this is an area that I've been focusing quite a bit on, trying to encourage transparency, and cooperation amongst the carrier, the broker-dealer or advisor, and then the attorneys that are representing them. And I find that if there is open communication, if there is a sharing of all necessary information, you know, this is not the time for the broker-dealer like, oh my gosh, I don't want them to know about X or, or oh, we should have done this and or that smoking, you know, gun that's that's in the file. And it happens right. all the time. Right. We just keep this quiet. Well, you can't keep it quiet because documents are discoverable. You're going to be penalized if you don't produce documents. Or if you don't produce documents and it happens to come up at arbitration, well, you don't have a chance in succeeding. You just don't. So be upfront, be transparent, be honest, and cooperate. There's no mm -hmm. question about that. You know, some mistakes that broker-dealers and advisors make early on in claim situations, especially if they've never had a claim before, or especially if the claimant is someone that the advisor has a good relationship with. One of the first things that you're, you may be inclined to do is to apologize. Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I made a mistake. How can I make it up? Here, let me, let me pay you. Well, those actions right there will void your policy. There are ways to communicate with your client without building up that wall and setting them off. But it can't be, I'm so sorry, I made a mistake here, let me pay you. It can't right. be that. <laughs> right. I, again, Lillian, this has been really, really enlightening. Thank you so, so much uh, for coming on the, on the show to share your expertise on the insurance side of the house and, and ultimately how many of the broker-dealer and RIA firms that are out there are, are impacted by by this insurance piece but let, let's get you out of here with something maybe a little bit more fun um which is 
you know, look, we're we're entering uh, the end of spring. Summer is coming upon us here soon. You know, hopefully the worst of the pandemic and COVID are in the rearview mirror. What's one thing that you are most looking forward to doing in the second half of 2021? Oh, boy. Well, I'm going to have to say it's my conference in September. (laughs) (laughs) We missed it last year. And uh, so it is scheduled September 12th through the 15th at the Montage at Palmetto Bluffs. It has become a reunion of sorts. This will be my 13th year. And uh, I'm excited to see all my friends and colleagues and perhaps some new faces. Maybe Patrick, you'll join us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's uh, pretty intense in terms of what we learn, but then we play. We all sure, play. sure. Looking forward to that. that. That's great. No, I, I agree. The idea of having in-person events again and getting to see people's actual faces and not just yeah. uh, things on a two-dimensional screen or, or is going to be a welcome a welcome change. Lillian, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Best of luck to you. Um, I hope the rest of your summer, uh, the, I hope the rest of your spring and summer goes well and l- look forward to having you back on the podcast here at some point. Patrick, it has been an absolute joy to be here with you. Thank you so much. And uh, thank you to the NSCP for having me. Today's final segment features another installment in the History Has Your Back series. As a quick reminder for some of our new listeners, this segment represents the part of the podcast where we go back in time to help us better understand the present and help define where we're headed in the future. In today's History Has Your Back, we look at the life of fireman hero Ed Pulaski. My father always said, a good carpenter never blames his tools. And while I completely agree with that saying, that doesn't mean that having the right tool can't make all the difference when it comes to completing the right task. Just ask Ed Pulaski. And some of you now may be asking, who the heck is Ed Pulaski? Well, for those trivia fans out there, Ed Pulaski is the iconic hero most associated with the Forest Rangers and the 1910 fires. He began working for the Forest Service in 1908 as a Forest Ranger on the Coeur d'Alene National Forest, and in 1910 directed hundreds of firefighters in daily activities outside of Wallace, Idaho. During the two-day peak of fire, known as the Big Blow-Up, Pulaski and his crew became trapped by the rapidly moving fire fronts, and he directed his men to a mine tunnel where they took refuge until the fires passed. Forty-five of his men survived the ordeal thanks to Pulaski's knowledge of the area, his ability to remain calm, and most of all, his selfless acts of heroism. From 1910 to 1929, Pulaski served as a district ranger, ultimately retiring from the service in 1930. During this time, however, Pulaski was credited with developing a combination axe and grubbing hoe tool. This has since been accepted as the standard firefighting tool of the U.S. Forest Service. In his honor, the tool still carries his name, the Pulaski Axe. In the first part of our show, we highlighted how having the right tool for firms large and small, but especially for firms with limited resources and capital, can make all the difference in the world. As NASA has shown, there are great resources out there for compliance professionals and legal practitioners helping our state and registered firms succeed in their business and operations, all while staying within the white lines. The big blow-up taught Ed Pulaski that he didn't have the right tool. 
he spent his entire life trying to create the right tool that would have helped him save even more firefighters that day when the big blow up occurred. Sometimes a tool can come pre-made with everything that you need, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we need to be discouraged when it doesn't. In fact, as Ed Pulaski would probably say, sometimes it just takes a little tinkering and you too could end up with something as useful and valuable as the Pulaski Axe. And that will do it for today's show. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Calfi and the NASA Society of Compliance Professionals, and extend a big thank you to our guest, Lillian Morvay, for coming on the show to discuss the incredible impact of insurance on compliance and how broker-dealers and RIAs are conducting their businesses today. Please join us again next time on the Securities Compliance Podcast, where we help you put compliance in context. Please check us out on LinkedIn. You can search for Compliance in Context Podcast or on Twitter using the handle at CompliancePod. You can like us and subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Or go to ComplianceInContextPodcast.com to listen and learn more. 